Morning, church. Let us pray. Father, certainly to the uninitiated, these are peculiar things that we sing. Blood, atonement, a cross, a crown, a thorny crown, and all of these things in their context, context which you have brought to bear upon our hearts and consciences, things which you have brought to fruition in repentance and faith in our lives, leave us saying, praise you, Yahweh, what a Savior you have provided for us, and these things Move us to a place where we are very eager to open our Bibles and to hear you speak to us, to read a passage that many of us are quite familiar with. We pray, Father, that though we are familiar with it, that you would grant that familiarity in in a sense to be stripped from us, that we might see these things anew, that our hearts would be touched by these things, that we would that we would love them anew, that we would love Jesus more, that we would be more grateful than when we walked in, more grateful for the salvation that you've provided for us, that we would see our sin more appropriately and see it in the context of the gospel that you have given us. And that our worship, as we close this service today, our worship would be even better informed by the truth. We pray all these things and we do so boldly because Christ has ushered us into the very throne room. We pray in His name. Amen. So, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, and we are at verse 26 now. This morning we will work our way through verse 52. We're going to begin by standing together and reading just the first little section, verses 26 through 31. So as you find your place there, let's all stand together and we'll read verses 26 through 31. Mark 14, beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
And they all said the same. You may be seated. This is going to be one of those messages where we, we have the opportunity to do some, some soaking in the character of Christ and to wonder at the, the nature of the gospel. If you have come here this morning and you've, you've not followed Christ, you've not turned from your sin and trusted in Him to save you from the wrath to come, I am glad you're here. If you have followed Christ and you still feel in your not perfectly sanctified state, you still feel that pull of sin and the occasional shame that comes with it, I am glad you're here. Likely all of us will see ourselves in this text. There is this repeated back and forth between Jesus and the disciples contrasting Jesus with them. Where the disciples fail, Jesus succeeds. Where they are weak, He remains strong. If we see ourselves in them, we'll find that He is the perfect Savior for us. And hallelujah, He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's good news for everyone here this morning. So we're going to walk through this text, and I'll make some comments, and I will tell you, just just hang in there, it will feel heavy, and that's good, but we will spend about the last quarter of the message considering what to do with this, what, what should this mean to us in terms of application, and likely all that heaviness builds up as we're walking verse by verse through the text, that heaviness will turn to a deep desire to worship as we leave this morning. Before we begin in verse 26, let's remember the context. We are here in the final hours of the Lord Jesus' life. Everything from chapter 14 to the end of the book prepares for, accomplishes, or follows from Jesus' death. And this chapter began with a woman anointing Jesus for burial beforehand in a very costly act of devotion while Judas and the Jewish leaders were conspiring together to see Jesus arrested so that he might die. Then in the passage that we, we looked at last time, the Lord shared a final Passover meal with the disciples where he predicted Judas's betrayal and judgment, and he predicted his own sacrifice for many by sharing the first Lord's Supper. And so now we pick up in verse 26, where the Lord predicts failure and restoration. The Lord predicts failure and restoration. And this should be seen in contrast to the prediction about Judas in the previous scene. Jesus predicted Judas's betrayal and judgment, now he predicts the other, the other disciples will fall away, but they will be restored. So let's begin again at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
So we have, we have in the entire passage, we'll find two scenes, two settings. The first is on the Mount of Olives as they are walking toward Gethsemane, and the second is in Gethsemane itself. Now on the way, Jesus predicts that they are going to fall away, the text says. All of them, just as the Scriptures have pre-recorded Jesus' suffering, so also they have pre-recorded the disciples' failure. And it's clear in the context, as we'll see, that for them to fall away means that they are going to leave Jesus. Sometimes the word that's translated here, fall away, sometimes it's translated sin. Other times, stumble. Sometimes, cause to sin. Other times, cause to disbelieve. It's got a wide range of meaning. But the idea is that when Jesus is arrested, their faith is not going to be strong enough for them to stay by His side. They're going to abandon Him and run. So, why would Jesus tell them this beforehand? You have read this in the past. Have you ever wondered why? Why would Jesus tell them that beforehand? Is this a guilt trip? Well, you're all going to fail me, as usual, because they have failed Him, right? They've failed Him over and over and over. But if we pay close attention to the text, we find that that it's actually the exact opposite. The, The text in verses 27 and 28 indicates that He told them in order to give them two measures of comfort in their failure. First of all, there's comfort in the Scripture that he quoted. Yes, it may be comforting that this is part of God's Word. He says, I'm going to strike the the shepherd and the, the sheep will be scattered. There may be comfort that this is part of God's plan. This was always going to happen. But what we need to know is that sometimes when Jesus or the apostles quote an Old Testament quote an Old Testament passage they are not just pointing to the words that they that they that they pull from that Old Testament quotation but also the 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 ideas of the passage itself in other words they're pulling that whole context into the the the, the context in which they are quoting it and I don't have to other uh, time to give other examples, but this is one of those situations. So the quotation in verse 27 is from Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13, 7. I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that verse comes in a short passage in Zechariah about refining or testing and, and restoration. And that's what's important. The and restoration. There's going to come a time of testing. And that's exactly what both Jesus and the disciples are about to face. So what what is Jesus going to do when He's faced with arrest? Will He submit to the Father's plan? Or is He going to go His own way? What will the shepherd do when He is struck? And the disciples, what are they going to do? When, when When the shepherd is struck, what will they do? When the heat is on, how are they going to respond? Testing is coming. That's what Jesus is, is indicating. And, and here's what comes immediately after that verse in Zechariah. This is Zechariah 8 and 9. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. 
And I would suggest that by quoting this passage in this context, Jesus is signaling that though the disciples are going to falter under testing, they will survive on the other side and they will be among those who call upon His name. They will be His people. He will be their God. In other words, He wants them to understand that even though they are going to fail in this impending testing that's coming... Even though they're going to fail, there is going to be restoration waiting for them. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't despair. You'll be restored. And that dovetails perfectly with the second word of comfort in the text. He says, after I'm raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. I will see you in Galilee. Before they've even failed, He's promising restoration. You're going to fail. It's been written. But don't despair. I'm going to atone for you, and I'm going to rise from the dead, and I will see you in Galilee. And the planting of that information, the planting of that information, after I'm raised, I'll go before you to Galilee, shows that there is no intention here to say, look guys, I just want you to feel sufficiently awful as you're abandoning me, so I'm telling you beforehand. That's not what's going on. He's telling them beforehand so that they won't despair under the weight of the sin that they're about to commit. That verse, verse 29, needs to color how we understand the whole passage. It also needs to color how we apply this. We will think about that together at the end. Verse 29, Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And, you know, you, you might expect such a prediction to give, to give Peter and the others pause. What, what are you saying we're going to fall away? We, we are the ones who left everything to follow you. Jesus has made a pretty direct prediction here. And if they'd thought about it, you know, you, you could count on zero fingers the number of times that Jesus has been wrong. He's never wrong. If he says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. That's easy to forget, isn't it? Verse 31, but he, Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they they all said the same. Now, we won't catalog the disciples' previous failures now, but if your memory is failing, you just reread Mark. You know, Mark's portrayal of, of the disciples is a great argument for the authenticity of this book. If, if this gospel, the gospel of Mark, was manufactured by somebody as a propaganda piece for Christianity, whoever wrote it would make Christians look better. But this gospel puts no sugarcoating on the disciples. They have a three-year history of almost pathetically weak faith and utter spiritual foolishness. Their vehement protest here shows a profound lack of self-awareness. You know, it's not just Peter saying, there's no way I'm denying you. If I have to die with you, I'll do that. They're all saying that. All, All 11 are saying that. Right after, they're saying that right after Jesus, who walks on water, terrifies demons, raises the dead, and is never wrong, right after Jesus says, you're all going to fall away. They are saying, no, you got it all wrong, Jesus. Solid as rocks we are. 
You know, even if you've never read this, you could tell exactly where it's going, can't you? What Jesus has predicted here in verses 26 through 31, just scan down in your Bibles to verses 42 through 52. 42 through 52 is where this is fulfilled. What he has said is going to happen in verses 26 through 31 happens in verses 42 through 52. We'll get there. But first we're going to look at verses 32 through 42. 32 through 42 is something like a pre-fulfillment, a pre-fulfillment of what he has just predicted. And it is in those verses that we see that the Lord endures agony and isolation. The Lord endures agony and isolation. So this middle scene is in a sense, it's like an emotional pre-fulfillment of the, the abandonment that Jesus just predicted. So look with me beginning at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. So think with me now. Basically, he has left eight. We might say toward toward the, the entry point of the garden, we might say he's taken three further into the garden with him, continuing in verse 33. And... He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, he said to the three, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Now, this is a very different look for Jesus. We perhaps are used to the the stoic TV Jesus, the emotionless, almost robotic Jesus that, that, that Hollywood likes to put in front of us. But Gethsemane reminds us that Jesus is, see, is fully divine and fully human. The Lord is greatly distressed and troubled. The hour of His arrest and suffering is near. His command to the disciples to, to remain and watch is connected to that distress. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful or, or deeply distressed even to death, meaning I'm so troubled it feels as if death is upon me now. Stay here and watch. Not watch me suffer, but, but keep watch. The word watch is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament for being on guard, keeping a lookout. It's frequently associated with prayer. And it makes most sense, given what the Lord has already predicted and what He's going to say later on, that this is a spiritually dangerous time for everyone and especially for the disciples. And we'll see repeatedly that even though, even though He has predicted that they're going to fall away, He still wants them to do what they should. Stay here and watch. Prepare for temptation. Don't fall away. Stay awake. This is the hour of testing. And we might think about it from their perspective. They likely have never seen Jesus like this. He has just predicted their falling away, and now he is greatly distressed and troubled. And you would think that those two things together would put them in a state of high alert. Not so. Jesus is on a state of high alert. He is greatly troubled. And what does he do in that moment of deep distress? Verse 35 tells us. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. 
Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, we could stay in these verses for days. We don't have time. Jesus is already suffering. He he is not yet to the cross, and He is already agonizing. And we may assume that it is the physical pain of the cross that He is now actively dreading, and that that is what He's agonizing. And certainly, the physical pain of the cross is nothing to look forward to. However, many thousands of people have been crucified by the Romans at this point. It's a sadly common occurrence. And Isaiah 53 indicates that this coming Messiah is going to suffer in a way that is unprecedented. Unprecedented. So what is it then about the cross that is going to make Jesus' time on the cross unlike anything that has come before it? What is it about the cross of Christ that will be singular in its intensity? We've considered this before. It's worth revisiting. You know how if you you commit a particular sin over and over, you get used to it? Each time you do it, it, it bothers you less and less. It just doesn't bother you like it once did. That's because your conscience is becoming desensitized. But if you can think back to earlier in that progression, you, you can remember a time that that sin really bothered you. and you, you felt the guilt of that thing acutely because your conscience was far more sensitive to it back then. Well, consider the fact that no conscience has ever been as pure and sensitive as that of the Lord Jesus. Because he never sinned, never even in thought or attitude, never. So for for just a moment, think about the worst thing that you've ever done. It should be hard to conjure that up, and, and I don't ask this to bring you pain, but just for context, that worst thing that you've ever done, the guilt of which was so awful that you perhaps have spent years trying to remind yourself that you no longer truly bear the guilt of it. It was that horrible. That was one, one sin. But now what is it that Christ is going to bear on the cross? All the sin. All the sin currently being committed against Him in that garden. All the sin currently being committed against Him in that garden the three denials that Peter will make before the sun comes up, all the disciples abandoning him very shortly. We'll read about it here in a few minutes. All, all the sin committed by the membership of Providence Bible Fellowship in the last 24 hours and the last 24 years. All the sin of all his people for all time It's going to make full contact with his perfectly pure and perfectly sensitive conscience all at once. And he will be so buried under it that the Scriptures will describe it as him becoming sin. 
Now that is awful. But worse, Jesus will experience the full displeasure and wrath of his Father for that sin. And he has only ever known the loving fellowship of the Father and the Spirit for all eternity past. But for those hours on the cross, he will be the object of God's wrath, which has somewhere been defined in this way. God's wrath is his settled anger towards sin expressed in the repayment of suitable vengeance on the guilty sinner. It's just awful. And so, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, is it that Jesus now doesn't want to atone for sin? We, we ought not understand Jesus to be saying that now he doesn't want to save anyone. I'm inclined to say he's asking, is there another way? And yet, he is submitting to the Father. He's expressing his desire. Is there another way? And yet, submitting to the Father. Verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now just notice again that there's a juxtaposition here between Jesus and the disciples. It's an hour of testing for all of them. Of course, Jesus is meeting the challenge and the disciples are not. Jesus is agonizing in prayer and the disciples are sleeping. Now, remember, there are three sleeping here, but Jesus addresses Peter specifically. And we might think that that it's because Peter was the most vehement about his determination to be faithful. And we might think, well, Peter's the one that needs rebuking the most. Maybe that's it, but I'm inclined to believe that this is not a rebuke, at least not entirely. In the Greek language, as in English, you can ask a question, a leading question, so, so as to lead someone to a negative answer or to lead somebody to a positive answer. You didn't bring the Coke Zero, did you? In other words, I, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I know you failed me. You failed me. I can ask that question another way. You brought the Coke Zero, didn't you? It's, it's just hope. You can hear the hope there. I know you've come through for me. You can do that kind of thing in Greek, and, and we have that here. And Jesus has asked the question in the second way. He's, he's asked a leading question expecting a positive answer. It is not that Jesus is saying, you couldn't watch one hour, could you? No. That, that it's not, that's not the way to read this. Jesus asks a leading question expecting a positive answer. You could have watched one hour, couldn't you? Yes. So watch and pray. It, it is perhaps mild rebuke, but there is more exhortation in what Jesus is saying. Watch and pray 
that you may not enter into temptation. The, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. If, if you would be faithful, you must pray. They're, they're, their spirits want it, but their, their flesh is weak. So pray, labor in prayer. And Jesus goes back to labor in prayer, verse 39. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So, so we're, we're, we're in, intended to understand that Jesus is praying that same prayer again, same prayer again. Verse 40, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So you have this threefold repetition. Jesus goes to pray. He comes back and finds them sleeping. And after the first, He calls them to pray for their own temptation. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And whether they recognize it or not, they've just proved it. And you can, you can feel in the text that, that the emphasis is actually on their, their failure, not on His prayer. Because the, 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 the portions of His prayer, they're shortened in the second and third times. The third time, it actually doesn't even mention him, His praying. Just Him coming back and finding them sleeping. The emphasis is on their, their failure. And remember that as Peter and the others were saying earlier, no way, no way. We're going to fall away. Jesus responded to Peter, you're going to fail me three times. You're going to deny me three times before the night is over. Well, here they've fallen asleep on guard duty three times. It's like a foreshadowing of what's going to come. Jesus predicted they would fall away, and they have already done so in a sense. They have already abandoned him in a sense. And now it is too late for them to, to prepare. It's too late for them to pray that they would overcome temptation in that moment when the betrayer comes upon Jesus. It's too late for them to prepare spiritually that they would stand in that moment of temptation because the betrayer has come. What are they going to do under the pressure? Again, you, you can see it coming. We find in this final section that the Lord suffers betrayal and abandonment. He suffers betrayal and abandonment. Verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And lead him away under guard. And when they came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, ironically, ironically, Judas is the only one who does what he said he was going to do. He offered to give Jesus to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and that's exactly what he does. He, he did what he said he was going to. Now, Mark uses here two different words for kiss. When telling the guards the sign, Judas used just the normal words for kiss. And here Mark calls him now, he calls him the betrayer. The betrayer said, the one whom I will kiss is the man. That's just the, the, the everyday word for kiss. But he uses an intensified form. When, when, when 
Judas actually kisses Jesus in verse 45. Judas doesn't give Jesus this, this little ashamed peck on the cheek. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie from back in, I believe it was 2004, you've seen that movie where Judas seems to give this tentative, shamed little kiss on the cheek. No, that's not what Mark is telling us here. Judas plants one on the Lord. Rabbi, kiss! I mean, he, he wants those guys to know exactly who this is. He gives them a big kiss. Verse 48, and Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And once again, we see, you remember from, from, from past sections, the fear that the Jewish leaders have of the crowd. It's at play here again. They are at the mercy of the crowd in this sense. They can't do this openly during the daytime. They have to do it at night because Jesus is well thought of among the people. They have to treat Jesus as a criminal even though He's been out in the open behaving as someone who has nothing to hide, which He doesn't. And Interestingly, the only other place that we find this use of the word robber is when Jesus is cleansing the temple. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you, he says to the Jewish leaders, you have made it a den of robbers. Of course, intending for them to understand, he's saying that you, chief priests, scribes, elders, you are robbers. You're robbing the people. You've made this a den of robbers. You are the robbers. And now they are treating him like what they are. Criminals, robbers. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. So, Peter, who said, if all fall away, I certainly won't. Even if it's necessary for me to die with you, I will not deny you. And the, the other ten who said the same. We'll not fall away. We'll die before that happens. They all left and fled. All left and fled. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. As Jesus has just said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus said it would happen. The Scripture said it would happen. It has happened. Verse 51. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Volumes have been written not only about why this is here, but but who this is. And I'm not going to speculate about, about who it is because we really just don't know. What seems to be pictured here is the undoing of discipleship. Remember back to chapter 1. Jesus called the original four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They left their livelihoods, even their families. They left everything to follow Jesus. And Jesus, in His characterization of what discipleship is, has been saying, if one would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. They had done that. They had left everything to follow Jesus. But now, this individual illustrates this pre-resurrection reality of the human condition. When the chips are down, the sinner leaves everything, including Jesus, to save his own skin. And, And now, Jesus really is alone. All have left him. 
We've not made much of it so far, but, but again, all, all, all of this is necessary. Jesus has emphasized it. Verse 27, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In verse 49, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus must be arrested as a criminal. Jesus must be abandoned. There is only room for one on the cross. He's the only one that could accomplish atonement. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. So, we have Jesus and the disciples strongly contrasted. He predicts their falling away. They say, no, no way. He's laboring in prayer. They're sleeping. He's submitting to the Father's will. They're ignoring His commands. When the mob comes, Jesus is faithful to the mission. The disciples are deserters. Now they have each other. Jesus is utterly alone. And it is all very heavy. Perhaps partly because we can see ourselves in the disciples. The question then is, what do we do with this? We, we have been conditioned as, as students of the Bible, as believers, to, to read God's Word and apply it to our lives. What do we do with this? Our, our impulse may be to do two things. Two well-intentioned things. The first, magnify Christ. Because even though the disciples were such failures, even though we are such failures, Jesus died for us anyway. And second, because we see ourselves in the disciples, beat up on ourselves in an attempt to shame ourselves to greater faithfulness. And so then in that vein, in the vein of doing those two things, we may think things like, say things like, Jesus knew what they were going to do, knew how they were going to fail Him, watched them do it, experienced it, and still went to the cross for them. Isn't Jesus wonderful? As, as if to say that in Jesus' hour of need, the disciples left Him alone, yet He still died for them. And then, then we may ask ourselves, how have I failed Jesus recently? Look at how loving Jesus is. How could I do that to Him? But the upside is that even though I'm so terrible, He died for me anyway. If you, if you, if you take a few minutes to think about that, you can see the problem with it. It implies an attitude in Jesus that says something like, well, I came to look for faithful people. I came to look for righteous people, but I can't find any. However, I've come so far, I might as well save someone. And you're lucky that I'm so forgiving because I'm going to do this even though you've failed me. That's the wrong picture. That's the way we think. That, that's, that's how we would be if we were in his shoes. And to think that way about Jesus, to apply the Scriptures that way, actually is to remake Jesus in our image. But he's different than we are. And you know, Paul actually gets at this in Romans chapter 5. As he's marveling at the Gospels, at the, at the Gospel, Romans chapter 5, verse 7, Paul writes, for one, meaning just a normal person, one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. And what Paul means by that is, we wouldn't die for a righteous person. I mean, you might be able to find someone who would. 
You might be able to find someone out there somewhere who would die for a good person, but, Romans 5, 8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that was the plan from the beginning. How do we know that? Because Jesus made it clear at the beginning of His ministry. You know who thought that, 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 that our way should be Jesus' ministry from the beginning? This, Jesus should look for good people. Who thought that that should be Jesus' ministry from the beginning? The scribes of the Pharisees in chapter 2. Because they were bent out of shape when they saw Him sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners. And they asked His disciples, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is Mark 2.17. Jesus heard it and He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus overhears this conversation. The righteous, that's not my gig. I save sinners. Came a long way to do it, and I'm not going back until it's done. Yes, Jesus, he, of, course, he, of course He knew He would be mistreated, He would be betrayed, abandoned, and denied. And we see in this passage that He endured it painfully. It hurt Him. And the, and the cross was awful. And it, and it was awful on His pure conscience to bear our sin. And it was awful to bear the wrath of God. But it was never going to deter His mission. It's the very reason for it. The very reason that He came was to die alone for sinners that they might be reconciled to God through faith in Him. And that's why verse 28 is so wonderful. And it's so wonderful that it comes early in the passage. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It's all part of the plan. You, you sin against me, I die for you. I rise from the dead and I go before you to Galilee. And as with these disciples, Jesus has always known, always known your sin experienced the betrayal of it, and so went to the cross, not and still went to the cross. Just that little tweak in our thinking can completely change our disposition toward Jesus. It, it can take us from shame to gratitude, perhaps from running away from Him to running to Him. And so listen, if you find glimpses of yourself in the disciples, if you recognize this morning that you've failed the Lord, you've sinned against Him, I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that you ignore that, that you ignore that you failed the Lord. Don't ignore it. But the answer is not to take this passage or one like it and shame yourself into obedience. The proper response to sin is repentance and faith. Look at this passage and rejoice because clearly Jesus is the Savior for you. I mean, they abandoned Him and so He atoned for them. Not and yet. They abandoned Him and so He atoned for them. Don't run from Jesus in shame. Run to Him in repentance and faith. Seeing our sin in light of this passage ought never make us think, man, I've, 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 I've no place with Him. Rather, He's exactly the kind of Savior that you need. 
When, when, he, when we failed, He succeeded. When we slumbered, He interceded. When we sinned, He atoned. When we fled, He stayed strong. And by the stripes that He endured alone, we were healed. Hallelujah. What a Savior. A, a physician who seeks not the well, but the sick. A Savior who seeks not the righteous, but the sinner. A Savior who willingly, painfully, lovingly fulfills His mission, which is exactly saving sinners. And so, believer, if you find yourself in sin this morning, run to Christ in repentance and faith. If, if, if you have never followed Christ and you recognize this morning that you have sinned against Him, the answer for you is the same. Run to Christ in repentance and faith. And when we have all done that, let us rejoice that this Jesus is exactly the Savior that we have needed. Now, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to spend a few minutes in silent reflection, considering what it is that the Holy Spirit would have each of us individually to do in response to these things. So let's pray. Oh, Father, hallelujah, what a Savior. We praise you for giving him to us. We ask that as we enter this time of reflection, that you would grant us to do so soberly, thinking rightly. You would move us to repentance and faith, that we would be grateful for the gift of Christ that having turned from our sin and trusted in Jesus, we would worship Him with our whole lives. We ask these things in His name. Amen.